Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I field a number of questions from listeners pertaining to the superiority of machines versus free weights, the importance of exercise variety in a training program, what makes someone a hard gainer and what they can potentially do about it, some interesting physiological roles of bone, and much more. To finish off the episode, we provide some advice for aspiring students and future researchers in the field of exercise science and potentially related fields as well. Remember, if you'd like to get your questions answered on a future Q&A episode, be sure to go to tiny.cc sbsqa and you can submit those questions there. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by a special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me today. What do you say we dive right into some questions? Well, I, I think first for our American listeners, happy Thanksgiving. This is going to air one week after Thanksgiving. Wait, our last episode airs on Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Happy belated Thanksgiving <laughs> and happy early Christmas. Absolutely. That's really kind of you. Um, and I, I was talking to somebody on the internet today. Pretty A lot of cool people on the internet, by the way, if you haven't checked it out. Um, but they asked if we were going to put out an episode on Thanksgiving Day. And I said yes. And I thought that would be a good family tradition for everybody. Um, by the time you hear this, you missed your opportunity. But from now on, every Thursday morning of Thanksgiving, you get the new episode of the podcast. You listen with your family. I think that would be fun. Uh, just some some background noise as you're finishing, you know, prepping the meal for the day. Uh, hopefully, we'll distract people enough that they don't get on the topic of politics. Maybe just make the whole day run better. I don't know. I think it's usually good for uh, people to really get into the politics and dig into some of these issues. A lot of fruitful conversations come from that. Sure. <laughs> All right, so hopping into it, we're going to start with a question for Eric from Jade. Jade asks, are there negatives of intaking too much protein? Is the one gram of protein per pound rule good? Uh, if I'm trying to build a lot of muscle, should I be taking in more than that? Yeah, that's a good question. It comes up a lot. Um, it seems to be really common that people are concerned about excessively high protein intakes and, and potential uh, health issues resulting from that. So um, first of all, let's talk theory. When you go on the internet, you're going to see people saying all sorts of bad things about protein. Uh, some of the common ones you're going to hear, one relates to the kidneys. A lot of people say the kidneys are going to be unable to sufficiently clear the waste products um, that are made during amino acid metabolism, and that the kidneys are going to be unable to neutralize the acid load resulting from high intakes of amino acids. And so by extension, people say high, pro high protein diets are bad for the kidneys themselves. And an offshoot of that, people will promote something called the acid ash hypothesis, which is that if you have a high protein diet, um, you'll be in this kind of systemic state of acidosis, and that will cause bone loss um, as a, a mechanism to deal with that acidosis and promote buffering. So those are two things that are repeated very frequently when you talk about high protein diets, um, but they're really not accurate. They're not true. Um, if you have a pair of healthy kidneys, you should be more than able to accommodate a high protein diet. 
Um, so the idea that you're going to cause direct kidney damage as a result of protein intakes within the ranges that we've actually studied, which you could argue go up to even above three grams per kilogram per day, which is a lot of protein um, and beyond. I mean, we've seen studies up into the four range that have at least found people to be generally okay. So basically, your kidneys should be able to handle about as much protein as you would want to eat. Um, once you start going above those uh, levels of protein intake, that's just not a very fun diet. And, and I can't think of a, a reason why you would ever intend to go that high with your protein intake. Um, now, when it comes to the acid-ash hypothesis, the idea of losing bone mass as a result of uh, high-protein diets... That's been, I think, pretty soundly debunked in the literature. And if anything, uh, there have been more recent studies that have shown that high-protein diets tend to have a neutral to potentially a positive effect on bone content and bone density over the lifespan. So um, the, the idea that high-protein diets are bad for bone, it, it, it's not only been debunked, but could actually be wrong in the opposite direction. It's, it's very possible that... Um, high-protein diets might actually have a modest positive effect uh, on bone, bone content and density over the lifespan. So the whole kidney family of protein myths, we can pretty much toss those out. The exception being if you have an underlying kidney pathology, um, you might want to talk with your physician about whether or not limiting, limiting protein intake is a good idea for you. So Absolutely, if you have serious kidney issues, there are some instances where a high-protein diet would be uh, definitely contraindicated and would uh, really put you at risk and put your health at risk. So, um, But it's important to separate those two things out. The fact that high-protein diets can be challenging uh, to a diseased kidney does not mean that a healthy kidney cannot accommodate high-protein intakes. Those are two very, very different things. Um, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about uh, potential liver issues with protein intake. Um, you know, the liver is he heavily involved in pr amino acid metabolism, involved in deamination, things like that. Um, so the liver, because it's involved with amino acid metabolism, a lot of people kind of go with an extension of that and say, well, if we're asking the liver to do things, maybe we're going to tire it out and fatigue it, and it's going to be generally bad for it. Um, much like with the kidney, the evidence that we have available would indicate that when we put a healthy person with a healthy liver on a high-protein diet, their liver seems to accommodate that completely fine. Um, there was a study fairly fairly recently, within the last couple of years, by Jose Antonio, uh, 14 males crossover study for one year. Um, they, they were studying high-protein diets in the range of 2.5 to 3.3 grams per kilogram per day for, for pretty long uh, periods of time that they were consuming these different levels of protein intake. And they did look directly at various liver and kidney biomarkers and found no deleterious or harmful effects. Uh, that same lab, they also did a study looking at intakes up to 4.4 grams per kilogram per day. Again, that's just a horrifically high protein intake. Yeah, there, there's really no reason to go that high. You, you've essentially maxed out the benefits of a high protein diet probably about halfway to, to that intake. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. anything above 2.2 grams per kilogram, you're really kind of reaching. Maybe you could make the argument if you're 
a bodybuilder in contest prep and you're five and a half percent body fat and just trying to get the last couple ounces of glute fat off, maybe you might hang around higher than 2.2 or 3. But yeah, 4.4 grams per kilogram is going to be a miserable time. You're going to be so full and satiated that you're going to feel sick all the time. So <laughs> there's just no reason to be up there. But in any case, they did that study. And again, they, they didn't directly look at uh, liver and kidney biomarkers to my knowledge, but everybody lived. <laughs> so that's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, but but they, they didn't have any serious adverse events reported aside from just people. I don't know if they mentioned it in the paper, but I'm assuming that people generally felt like crap, at least a few of them. Well, one would think. Yeah, so I, I'm not even going to go back and check for that. I'm comfortable saying if we find 20 people and we put all of them on 4.4 grams per kilogram, at least six are going to say, I hate this. I feel gross all day. Well, and probably only three are actually going to strictly adhere to it. Correct. Yeah. Due to that reason. Yeah. So the the reality of the situation is there's a lot of these myths out there about the kidneys and the liver and even bone health that high protein diets are going to be deleterious or disadvantageous or even dangerous. And if you are an otherwise healthy person with no underlying kidney or liver disease or pathology, you should be completely well equipped to handle high protein diets. Now, obviously, I'm restricting that to the levels of intakes that we've seen in the literature. So we've got plenty of studies above two grams per kilogram, not many above three, um, and only one that I know above four in humans. So obviously, if you're if you're trying to make a point. I've said this on the podcast before, I think, but my general nutrition rule is if you do extremely weird things, weird things could happen. So if if you push the intake of anything beyond anything we've ever seen in the, the literature, I can't rule out the possibility that something weird might happen. Um, but, but within sensible protein intakes, high protein diets seem to be completely fine. Um, and there are many benefits of high protein diets. So if you're training hard, obviously you want to maximize the anabolic response to training and you want to minimize muscle loss during weight loss. So high protein diets are terrific for that. If you're trying to lose weight, they also have a great effect on promoting satiety and fullness. They also have a high thermic effect of feeding. So um, generally speaking, whether you're trying to gain muscle or retain muscle and lose fat, um, high protein diets seem to be a good way to go. How high? That's a good question. Um, generally speaking, most people who lift weights are going to be just fine in the 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day range. Um, I think a lot of people push one gram per pound because it's very easy, especially if you're used to, do to dealing with pounds as your unit of weight measurement. But um, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram seems fine if you're a person who really prioritizes your weightlifting resistance training progress. Um, endurance athletes might get away with slightly lower intakes in the 1.4 to 2.2-ish range, but, but that should be a good range to start in. And then there are some special instances, like I said, very lean people who are cutting really hard might venture beyond 2.2. That's based on a review paper that our, our dear friend, the good Dr. Eric Helms wrote a few years ago. Um, one final thing I want to talk about, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, the Game Changers documentary. Um, they had this awesome part. I'm paraphrasing, but they basically implied that if you ate meat, it would have a bad effect on your muscle glycogen levels. And of all the 
half-baked ideas that got kind of lobbed out during that documentary, I think that was the most harmful to me as a person and my heart and my brain. Because I was like, that's just the (laughs) stupidest thing. Like, it was operating under this zero-sum assumption that, well, if you're eating meat, you're probably on, what, a 90% protein diet? Sure, (laughs) of course. Like, there's no way a person could have meat in their diet and also have several hundred grams of carbohydrate per day to completely replace all the glycogen that they use throughout the day. I mean, it it wouldn't shock me if someone did like a very biased funded study where it was like one group eats a steak and the other group eats like four cups of rice. It's like, which one has higher glycogen? Ooh, the rice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'd believe it, but, uh, yeah. So man, it's, it's one of those things that like, if that makes it through the editing process, you kind of just take the whole thing and throw it out in the trash. You're like, okay, I, I I've seen what's going on here. So, um, yeah, don't worry. You can still eat high-protein diets, which do include meat sometimes, and still manage your muscle and liver glycogen levels very effectively. Well, I so. mean, th- this isn't really my area, but there's, um, I'm pretty sure I've seen some research looking at glycogen replenishment rates in endurance athletes where they test just carbohydrate versus carbohydrate with not like a tremendous amount of protein, but carbohydrate plus some level of protein. And if memory serves, those studies tend to find either similar or slightly superior glycogen replenishment with carbohydrate plus protein versus carbohydrate alone. You are correct. Cool. So yeah, it's another instance of not just being wrong, but being wrong hard in the other direction. (laughs) All right. So I I think that uh, I think that answers that question, right? I think so. Okay, let's move on to the next one. This one is from Alistair. And the question is, so we had Lauren Colenzo Semple on the show some number of months ago. I've lost track of, of time. But uh, she's one of our coaches at Stronger by Science. And we were talking about training. And she basically um, suggested an idea. I don't think she was like, you know, leaning hard into it. It's not like her main coaching philosophy that she's about to write an ebook about or anything like that. But she talked about the value in sometimes rather than doing like six sets of the same exercise saying, well, why don't you just do one set of six different exercises and present a more varied stimulus for the muscle? And so the question here is, is there any reason to believe that changing exercises circumvents the diminishing returns effect of doing multiple sets? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, And it's not one to which I have a firm answer. But what I will say is that I think that uh, that the effect of doing like multiple different exercises with the same number of sets, I think that the the net impact of that would either be neutral at worst or possibly positive. Uh, The reason I say possibly positive is that I'm not sure that it would have an impact on say just like total lean body mass accretion or total like arm lean mass accretion or anything like that. Uh, But there is some evidence that varying exercises helps kind of target all regions of a particular muscle or all muscles within a muscle group more effectively. So, um, and, and that statement, I think like 
five years ago would have been completely decried as bro science, but now there's actually a, a pretty fair amount of evidence for it. So to start with, um, I think probably the first study that I bring up when having this discussion uh, is one from Fonseca and colleagues in 2014. The title is Changes in Exercise Are More Effective Than in Loading Schemes to Improve Muscle Strength. And so essentially in that study, they had four groups. Um, one of them, so the way that study worked is it was a training study with volume increasing over time. And in one of the groups, what they did is they kept the exercise the same the whole time, the exercise being Smith machine squats, uh, but they varied the load throughout, kind of like an undulating periodization deal. Um, in another group, they kept just the exercise the same, only Smith machine squats, didn't vary the load. So it was like 80% 1RM for every session. Uh, one of the groups, they varied the exercises. So they had four lower body exercises in total, Smith machine squats being one of them, but I think also leg press, lunges, and deadlifts maybe. Um, so two of the groups, they had that variety of exercises. One of them, again, used varying loads, so kind of like a undulating periodized approach. And one of them just stuck with about 80% 1RM for every session for those four different exercises. And so the, the net result of that study is I want to say strength gains were pretty similar in every group, or maybe they were better in the groups that varied exercises. I don't remember that one for sure, but this question is about hypertrophy, and I do remember this one for sure. Uh, what they found hypertrophy-wise, they were looking at quad growth, and essentially like vastus lateralis growth and just like generalized quad growth was pretty similar in all four groups. But the groups that varied exercises um, throughout the study had like better growth in all four heads of the quads. So like general quad growth was pretty similar in all of the groups, but the ones that varied exercises uh, like had more vastus intermediate gro intermediate growth or vastus medialis growth. So like kind of overall well-rounded quad hypertrophy favored the groups that varied exercise even though like generalized quad growth was probably pretty similar across the board. Um, so that's that's looking at different muscles within a single muscle group. There's also some research looking at regional activation with different exercises targeting the same muscle group. So this is, this is the piece that a few years ago people would have decried as bro science. The idea was basically, you know, if you activate the hamstrings, the entire muscle gets activated and it's probably going to have a, a relatively hyper, a relatively similar hypertrophic effect all the way up and down the length of the muscle. What we found since then is there's kind of like, well, essentially just that regional activation is possible. If you activate the hamstrings, like the middle of the hamstrings muscle, the proximal parts of it, the distal parts of it are all probably going to activate to a similar degree, but based on the exercises you choose, you can have say greater proximal hamstring activation or greater distal hamstrings activation um, based on the different sorts of exercises you choose. Specifically here, like hip extension type exercises seem to kind of activate the whole muscle somewhat equally or maybe slightly more like the proximal parts of the hamstring, like closer to your butt. And like knee extension type stuff seem, or knee flexion type stuff, I mean, uh, seems to activate kind of the distal portions of it closer to your, to the back of your knee uh, a little bit more. But, but that's a, 
That's a generalizable thing that we found with different exercises in different muscle groups. So by varying exercise for the same muscle or the same muscle group, you may get a little bit more well-rounded hypertrophy up and down the entire length of a muscle instead of just concentrated at the point that, say, a particular exercise would target with regional activation. Um, this is somewhat, this, this is a bit of an aside, um, but just to illustrate how plastic muscle fibers are, there was actually a rodent study, uh, which I didn't dig up before recording this, but which Andy Galpin shared, I don't know, maybe a year ago at this point, um, but it was looking at uh, myosin heavy chain isoform uh, densities up and down the length of an entire muscle fiber. So essentially, like a decent amount of your muscle fibers aren't just like pure type 2 or pure type 1. They'll have like a mixture of type 1 myosin and type 2 myosin heavy chains. Um, and it found that like the the amount of type 1 versus type 2 myosin heavy chains can actually vary up and down the length of a single muscle fiber. Um which suggests that like there were probably some some adaptations going on that would spur that that like you know maybe the proximal or the distal part of that fiber was getting generally more work in that mouse's day-to-day -day life so anyway muscles are pretty plastic um and i do generally think that varying the exercises you use to target a particular muscle will probably give you more well well-rounded growth down the entire length of that muscle or across that entire muscle group so as i said to start with if you're just interested in just sheer total growth like maybe muscle volume just as a, a gross measure of that entire muscle size i don't know that varying exercises is going to affect that so much I kind of think it will, but I'm not sure about that. But I do think it will probably give you more well-rounded growth, again, kind of across the entire muscle and throughout the entire muscle group. Um, and I certainly don't think it's going to be worse for total hypertrophy. Now, in terms of how you accomplish that, I don't necessarily know that you would need to do it the way Lauren suggested of, like, you know, maybe using six different exercises for one muscle group within a workout instead of just six sets of one exercise. Uh, you know, it could be you do a four-week block of one exercise and then you do a four-week block of another exercise and then you do a four-week block of another exercise. Or it could be, you know, if you're training biceps twice a week, you do uh, two sets of three different exercises on one day and then you do two sets of three different exercises on the other day. Like, I, I don't think that you have to use all of those exercises within one session. There's there's different ways you could set that up. But I am generally in favor of, like, varying the exercises you use to attack a particular muscle group. Again, if your primary goal is hypertrophy. If it's strength, then, you know, you probably don't want to stray too far away from the exercises you're primarily using to test strength. So if you're a powerlifter, you should probably be doing a fair amount of squat bench deadlift. Maybe have some variation in there, but, you know, probably the majority or at least a good bulk of your work coming from the classical exercises. But if your goal is hypertrophy, I think variation's generally a good thing. Um, and one other possible benefit as well is just motivation. And here, different people are wired differently. Some people want a reasonably small stable of exercises they do. They want to do them all the time. 
They want to be able to more directly be able to compare their performance in this session to, you know, the session they just did three days ago and the session they did four days before that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for a lot of people, like variety is the spice of life and they just, you know, like to do more exercises and kind of get bored if they do the same stuff all the time. That doesn't apply to everyone, but it does apply to some people. Um, so just to kind of wrap this up and bring it home, uh, varying exercises, especially doing a bunch for a single muscle group within one session, I don't know that it's strictly better. I think at worst, it's probably about as good as doing a bunch of sets of just one exercise, but I do think it is probably at least somewhat beneficial for ensuring well-rounded development of the particular muscle group that you're trying to target. I should be fair here. The uh, example I put forth of doing like six different exercises in the same workout, that might have been a straw man. I simply don't remember with a great deal of detail exactly the scenario we talked about with Lauren. So if, if I made an egregious, exaggerated straw man, my sincerest apology. <laughs> All right. So moving on. Next question for Eric. Uh, I don't see the questioner's name here, but the question is machines versus free weights for hypertrophy, which allows the greatest volumes and gains with four Z's. Yeah. So there's a reason why I, I, uh, arranged the questions this way, uh, because I think this question, um, I, you know, we have a little bit of overlapping referencing. So I think when it comes to machines versus free weights, um, one of the benefits to me of machines are that they they allow for additional variety, as you mentioned. And so for some people, um, that variety is going to meet their preferences better. Like you said, some people really enjoy having that variety. Um, I intended to talk a lot about that study by Fonseca at all that you talked about with squats only versus a variety of exercises. Um, and I think that's really a place where machines shine is... If you walk into a commercial gym setting and you say like, yeah, I want to get plenty of leg volume, but I don't want to just like squat until I puke. What's really great is that the machines offer you a way to target different muscle groups at different angles, um, get a more uh, varied stimulus for hypertrophy. So, you know, the reason I wanted to bring up that Fonseca study, they, they compare the squat only versus squat with leg press, deadlift, and lunges. Obviously, only one of those is a machine, but certainly when you have a commercial gym set up and all those machines at your disposal, you can imagine that for a given amount of total uh, number of sets for a leg workout, um, it really opens up the playbook in terms of you know being able to give a nice, well-rounded stimulus for hypertrophy. Um, and one of the cool things about machines or another cool thing is the fact that machines can be used with really minimal setup time um, and without a, a great deal of skill or experience. You know, you could be working with an online client who maybe is beginner to intermediate in, with skill level and you don't want to assign them really specialized free, late, free weight accessory exercises that either require a great deal of skill and balance or... Um, they might just not be advanced enough. They might not be ready for them yet. Or frankly, they might just be a pain in the ass to set up. <laughs> and so it's like, you know what? We could also just go to a hack squat machine, which hack squat machines are probably among the most underrated machines that you could possibly find in a gym. 
nothing better for the quads than a well-made hack squat machine. So um, I, I think that machines certainly have a place. And I think um, one of the things about machines that is frustrating is that they've developed such a bad reputation among the, the more like hardcore lifters within certain pockets of the fitness industry. You know, th- there are certainly some uh, some pretty old school folks who are, are perceived to be pretty hardcore lifters that still utilize all sorts of machines, you know? Um, but I think for a lot of people, they think like, you know, it's free weights or bust basically, but machines, uh, they should very much be a viable part, uh, of the, uh, of the playbook that you have at your disposal. And there is a study by Fabricio Rossi at all. And so Fabricio, I actually got a chance to meet him when he was working with uh, Jason Kaliva down in coastal Carolina. Uh, really good guy, really good researcher. And in that collaboration with with Jason Kaliva, they did a study looking at squat versus uh, leg press. And I think they had a third treatment arm, which was squat and leg press. And without getting really far into the details of that study, basically what they found was for most of their outcomes, whether you were squatting, leg pressing, or both, you were pretty fine. The, 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 uh, the outcomes were fairly similar, uh, specifically when it comes to the lean body mass changes, they were, they were pretty much equivalent with the three of those groups. The functional outcomes varied a little bit. And obviously when it comes to exercise specificity is is a very important consideration. So there, there are certainly some physical tasks where you can't just throw out in the squat and say, whatever, I'm going to leg press instead, right? Specificity absolutely is important to keep in mind. But when it, you know, the question was specifically about hypertrophy, I think with hypertrophy, I I don't think it's fair to say that machines are better than free weights. And I think certainly you would want, uh, assuming that you have, uh, you don't have any constraints in terms of injuries or skill level, I still think you want to build the base of your program around compound movements that are likely to feature a lot of free weights. Um, But I don't see any reason to consider free weights to be unequivocally superior to machines when the machines are utilized well within the context of the program. So um, my advice to people when it comes to getting in your volume to promote the hypertrophy you're looking for, just understand that uh, free weight and machine exercises are all on the table. Um, I think for most people, a combination of the two is going to make a lot more sense than going really hard in one direction or the other. You can do just fine in terms of hypertrophy, if you're going machines only, and you can do just fine for hypertrophy if you're going free weights only. So I, I don't think it's a dichotomy that is particularly uh, constructive. I, I, I think you put together a program, you want to make sure if hypertrophy is the goal, you want to make sure you have sufficient volume. And as we've talked about, it might make sense to make sure you have plenty of exercise variety in the mix. And if some of those are machines, no problem at all. Another cool thing about um, utilizing a variety of exercises, this is something we've touched on before, which is kind of a bit of a tangent, but uh, I know for me, anecdotally, I'm by no means anywhere close to an expert on injury uh, or anything of the sort, but if I just hammer a single lift in the same plane of motion, in the same angle, in the same direction, set after set after set, day after day, uh, that can really bring a little bit of wear and tear to the joints involved. And so sometimes a nice thing about variety with your exercise selection, whether it's with machines, free weights, or both, is that you're hitting things at different angles, loading the joints a little bit differently and and the different tissues that make up the joint. And it can be a nice 
a nice uh, beneficial aspect that you are giving your joints a little bit of variety as well and not overloading them the exact same way set after set after set. So that's uh, that's my take. Do you have any anything to add when it comes to machines, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it... I think it largely depends on what machine you're talking about and what free weight exercise you're comparing it to. So for example, uh, you mentioned a study comparing squats versus leg press. And the thing about squats and leg press is they're pretty similar exercises. So in both cases, they have a varied strength curve. So there's a part of the range of motion where you're weaker and there's a part of range of motion where you're stronger. Uh, and but they have flat resistance curves. So the amount of resistance a barbell is pushing down on you with is the same throughout the range of motion. Same thing with a leg press. The amount of force this the sled of the leg press is pushing into your feet with is the same throughout the range of motion. So those are are fairly comparable exercises in terms of comparing strength curve to resistance curve. However, if we look at something like say a pec fly or a pullover and compare that to like a pec deck or a really high quality pullover machine, I think it could be a little bit different uh, hypertrophy wise. So if you do a full range of motion fly, uh, you know, it's hard at the bottom. By the time the weight's a third of the way up, it's stupidly easy. Same thing with a pullover. Uh, When the dumbbell is below your head or near head level, it's pretty challenging. Once you bring it probably four or five inches above head level, it's super easy. Compare that to a pec deck, which is specifically designed to be able to keep tension on your pecs through the entire range of motion. Or like we've talked about on this podcast before, both Eric and I love a well-made pullover machine. Keeps really great tension on your lats and and probably long head of your triceps to some degree as well. Uh, But really, really great tension on your lats through the entire range of motion. I would be a little surprised if a pullover machine wasn't better for lat hypertrophy than a dumbbell or an easy bar pullover was for lat hypertrophy. I'd be a little surprised if a pec deck wasn't a little bit better for pec hypertrophy than dumbbell flies were for pec hypertrophy. Um, So they have that benefit of being able to match strength curves to resistance curves a little bit better, or I guess resistance curves to strength curves. Um, like the way the cam systems are built, that's literally what they're designed to do. And for some free weight exercises, I doubt that matters all that much because the strength curve is relatively flat. Uh, but for some free weight exercises, I do think that can make quite a bit of a difference and give an advantage to machines. And then another thing I would say is I very much agree with, with Eric that it's good to have variety. And I think I think sometimes you're a little bit limited variety-wise with free weights in terms of being able to pick exercises where you can really make sure uh, you're going to be limited by the target muscle and can keep you know, good stress on that target muscle. So for example, if you're trying to train your quads and you're doing free weight exercises, you have squats and some variety of squats, that's good. Uh, where do you go after that? Bulgarian split squats? Those are okay, but until you get really good at them, do you really want to go to failure? Because, you know, you could lose your balance. Well, okay, let's do dumbbell Bulgarian split squats. So if you start losing your balance, you just drop the dumbbells. That's fine. But as you get stronger, grip is going to be become a limiter before quad fatigue is. Um, 
So, or, you know, like step ups or lunges, similar type things. Um, like balance could become an issue or just getting other muscles involved could start limiting you before you actually are able to fatigue the muscle that you're trying to fatigue. But if you open yourself up to also using machines to get that variety, then, you know, you could do hack squats. That's always going to be limited by your quads or leg press, which if you do it correctly can also always be limited by your quads. Um, so in, in that case, machines wouldn't strictly be better, but it's more like, you know, for, for some muscles, there is a tremendous amount of variety you could achieve with just free weights. And for other muscles, you're, you're going to be somewhat limited with really good exercise selection, unless you open yourself up to, to working some machines in as well. That's a really good point. Very good addition. Okay, moving on to the next question. This one is from who? Oh, I How would you pronounce that? E E to Petter? E E to Petter. That works for me. Okay, so the question is, we know that bone mineral density improves with weight training. I was wondering if there would be any reason to suspect that this relationship could be two-way, like a two-way street in, in that purposefully growing or improving bone mass could potentially be a way to improve muscle mass and strength. Is it possible to even prioritize bone mass in this way? So gen the, the general premise here, we know that weight training increases bone mass, but is there a chance that purposely increasing bone mass has a carryover effect that would be beneficial for muscle and strength? And if so, how would you do it? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And it's it's a question that I won't. I really want to look into more at some point. Um, so, like in terms of my academic background, um, <laughs> like ex phys classes you take focus a pretty fair amount on muscle. They don't focus on bone all that much. You know, we learn about how bone elongation occurs with aging. Um, that osteoporosis is a bad thing, and that uh, you know. Wolf's Law exists for bone remodeling. Like that, that's essentially all you learn about bone in an exercise physiology class. If you want if you want to get into it more, you probably need to take specific courses on bone, which aren't generally assigned in certainly in undergraduate and probably graduate level physiology as as well. Um, or you just need to get into like the bone literature, which unless you know a pretty fair amount about it, it's hard to wade into. So I have started wading into that literature because this is something I want to know a lot more about, um, but I very well may have a better answer to this question in a couple years. However, I do think I have at least a somewhat decent answer to it now, um, which is that I think that is a possibility that trying to improve bone mass could also improve muscle mass, or at least increase your potential to add more muscle mass. The reason I say that is there is a lot of crosstalk between muscle and bone. Um, one of the reasons why there's not as much bone stuff in basic physiology textbooks is bone is one of those tissues where until like somewhat recently, and I don't mean like the last two years, but more like the last 10, 20 years, um, people thought that bone was more or less inert. Uh, they knew that it could remodel itself, um, but they didn't know that it had huge impacts on the rest of the body. Now that now we know that you know bones produce hormones that can affect 
a wide variety of things throughout the body. Uh, the, the changes in bone metabolism can drive um, different hormones in different parts of the body, um, like parathyroid, parathyroid hormone, etc. Um, and so, like, we now know that bone is a lot more metabolically active and hormonally interesting than we used to. Um, so that stuff is in the literature now, but it hasn't been around long enough to make it into a lot of textbooks. Interestingly, the other tissue that kind of meets that description is adipose tissue. Um, people used to think that adipose tissue was essentially inert. You just, you know, stored fat, released fat, and that was about it. Now we know that adipose tissue does a lot of very interesting stuff as well. But again, that hasn't been known long enough to really filter into the textbooks. Um, but anyway... So bone is metabolically active. It, it affects signaling pathways throughout a lot of the body. And there's quite a bit of crosstalk between muscle and bone. Um, and so it is very plausible that stuff going on in the bone could affect the muscle as well. Uh, if there's some sort of regulator for like bones to protect themselves, that could pretty clearly affect... Um, like how much muscle your body will let itself accrue insofar as like when your muscles contract, that puts a tremendous amount of compressive force on your bones. And so like maybe if your bones just aren't strong enough, they send signals to your muscles to say like, hey dudes, like stop getting bigger and stronger or bad things are gonna happen. I'm not saying that happens, but that would be an incredibly plausible thing to happen just as a protective mechanism. Um, Another kind of interesting thing to throw in there is uh, Francis Hallway, who was interviewed for the book The Sports Gene. Um, he has, uh, it's not really like a proprietary algorithm, but he has, he has a big database of various athletes' muscle-to-bone ratios. Uh, so that's not, that's not like dry weight of a bone, which is essentially what you get if you got a DEXA, but it's like a big... Uh, anthropomet you take a bunch of different anthropometric measurements and use that to estimate the wet weight of bone someone has in their body. And in this big, huge database he has, he finds that essentially elite athletes in a wide variety of different sports seem to get to a muscle to bone ratio of essentially five to one. And then past that point, you see very, very few people who have more muscle than that in relation to how much bone they have. Um, so th that again, lends some degree of evidence to the idea that maybe the amount of bone you have can constrain how much muscle you can grow. Um, something else we've talked about on the podcast before is just the general observation that active kids tend to have higher muscle and strength potential than like kids who grew up more sedentary. Uh, again, there's no research on that, but that's an observation I've had. And I think a lot of other people have had as well. Um, and so kids who are more active wind up with more bone mineral density by the time they're hitting puberty and adulthood. Um, so maybe there's some sort of relationship there as well. Uh, and then in terms of just the directionality of the relationship of muscle influencing bone and bone influencing muscle, obviously muscle influences bone tremendously. Like I said before, muscles contract, that puts a lot of compressive force on bone that causes bone remodeling helps bones get thicker and stronger. Like that is a well-known directionality of that relationship. But there's actually some evidence that um, probably metabolically to some degree, bone might be affecting muscle more than the other way around. So there was a 2017 study um, by 
Yoshimura and colleagues. Title is, Is Osteoporosis a Predictor of Future Sarcopenia or Vice Versa? Four-Year Observations Between the Second and Third Road Study Surveys. Um, and so this isn't, this is like the opposite of hypertrophy and gaining bone mass. This is like, you know, losing muscle mass and bone mass, but looking to see like what the primary direction of influence is there. And so in this study, what they found is that um, developing osteoporosis was a statistically significant predictor of then also developing sarcopenia. Um, but the opposite relationship wasn't true. Developing sarcopenia was not a statistically significant uh, predictor of developing osteoporosis. Now, I should note in this study, um, it very much seemed like the direct, like the relationship worked in both directions. So the odd ratio, the odds ratio for osteoporosis predicting sarcopenia was 2.99, and for um, sarcopenia predicting the development of osteoporosis, it was 2.11. The difference though, in terms of the strength of the prediction is that the confidence interval for osteoporosis predicting sarcopenia was quite a bit tighter than the confidence interval for the opposite relationship. Um, so, so that's where they kind of, th that's where they derived the conclusion that osteoporosis was a stronger predictor and therefore possibly more causative of sarcopenia than sarcopenia being more causative of osteoporosis. It is probably still a two-way relationship. Like, don't get me wrong. Uh, just if, like, if you could perform a magic experiment, or like, a, if you could perform magic and just take a group of people and say, now you have no muscle mass, their bones are going to go downhill quickly. Uh, and if you could also do the same thing and say, hey, now you have no bone mineral density, their muscle mass and muscle strength is also going to go downhill quickly. So like, this relationship definitely works in both directions, but this study is saying that the sh the strength of that relationship is probably more so in declining bone health affecting muscle health more so than declining muscle health affecting bone health. Um, so it very well could be the case that that sort of directionality of that relationship also applies to gaining bone mass and gaining muscle mass. That, you know, your muscles get stronger, it helps your bones. It could also be that getting your bones stronger and healthier helps your muscles, maybe to a slightly greater degree than the opposite way around. Uh, we don't know that for sure yet, but it is at least plausible. Uh, that's all I'm trying to do in this question. I'm not saying this is a for sure thing. I'm just saying it is a plausible thing, and I do think it is quite plausible. Um, so then the question is, if all of that is true, if we assume that that's all true, um, what are ways you could go about trying to prioritize and improve gaining bone mass and bone mineral density to improve muscle mass and strength? One of the big ones is just keep training. Uh, heavy resistance exercise is good for improving bone mineral density and certainly for preserving it as you age. If you want to go above and beyond that, though, the two things that come to mind immediately, for me at least, would be possibly doing heavy partials, um, just getting overload on your skeleton. And if you go that route, I would recommend not going crazy with it at first. Um, you know, probably doing stuff through a slightly shortened range motion that would maybe allow you to lift 10% more weight than you would otherwise be able to. I wouldn't recommend doing like super, super partial range of motions with 
twice as much weight as you can move through a full range of motion, that would probably be overkill. Um, but yeah, partials might do the trick. I'm not sure, but that is possible. And the other thing that would come to mind is plyometrics. Um, plyos, just because there's the shock of uh, like absorbing the force as you hit the ground, that causes uh, quite a bit of stress to the bone, and that also causes bone remodeling. So uh, partials and plyos would be probably my two suggestions of if you wanted to do something on top of just normal heavy resistance training to try to improve bone health further. This is a little bit off topic. Did you happen to see that paper, I think it was a month or two ago, indicating that bone played a particularly important role in the fight or flight response? I did, yeah. I, I didn't. Did you read the paper at all? I skimmed it. <laughs> yeah, I, I read the title and I said, a better version of me would stop and read that paper. But I was very busy at the time, so I haven't checked it out yet. I mean, the the paper came out right when all of us were like trying to finalize mass for the month. Yep, that'll um, do it. But it's uh, it's definitely on my radar. Um, and it, if memory serves, that paper kind of spoke to one of the things I mentioned before that like, I want to say that paper was talking about how like, bone can influence thyroid hormone output, which is then like part of the fight or flight cascade. Uh, I don't remember that for sure. But yeah, I mean, bone does a lot of a lot of crazy shit, like way, way more than probably 90% of people listening to this podcast are aware of and way, way more than the scientific community knew about even five or 10 years ago. Yeah. In a future episode, we're going to have an interview with somebody. I'm going to keep it secret for now. But uh, we, we talked about there's also a paper indicating that there might be some type of bone, some kind of mechanism by which bones can sense how much we weigh and potentially provide some feedback when it comes to body weight regulation. There have been some really intriguing studies done in mice where they implant external loads, basically, uh, and see how that affects their ability to control and manipulate their body weight with some really shocking results. So I think we're really, we're really just starting to understand like, oh, wow, that whole thing that keeps our body together, it also seems to do other things aside from just being scaffolding. So it'll, it'll be exciting to see uh, to see where it goes from here, but there, there's certainly uh, several active lines of research that are going to pick up. All right. So moving on, next question for Eric is from someone uh, who is named or goes by Skinny. Okay. So the question for Eric is: Do quote unquote hard gainers benefit from exceeding one gram of protein? Oh yeah. So this is another one about high protein. I thought I was just rereading a question. Do hard gainers benefit from exceeding one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight? Does that ramp up signaling in any meaningful way? Side question. Do you see much in the literature about quote unquote hard gainers who are female? Using scare quotes because according to the internet, some folks question the premise of hard gainers existing at all. All right. So my answer for skinny, I'm sure the, the name skinny has nothing to do with the subject matter of the question. <laughs> asking about me, asking about hard gainers. Okay. So I, I view this as more of a hard gainer question than a protein question because, uh, well, I'll, I'll, it'll become apparent as we go here. But I, I just saw one gram per pound and got scared. Yeah. I was like, shit, <laughs> scrolled to the wrong part of the outline. No, that makes sense. Um, 
So let's work our way backwards. Hard gainers in, in quotes here. Is there such a thing? There might as well be. Okay, so what I mean by that is there is certainly a segment of the population that struggles when they try to intentionally gain weight. Um, so whether there is a singular thing that defines that, I'm not necessarily worried about that at this time. What, what's more important is we've got this group of people who struggles to gain weight and would like to. So clearly that is a thing that exists. And I've basically broken it down into uh, three potential groups of people who are struggling to put on the amount of muscle that they would like to gain. Okay, so let's go with group number one. You might consider yourself a hard gainer if uh, you try to do caloric overfeeding, you know, you try to increase your caloric intake significantly, but you find that even when you are adherent to a higher caloric intake, you don't really seem to gain as much weight as you would expect. And it's very possible that you might be a person who has a large increase in energy expenditure when you intentionally overfeed. This is a thing that has been documented in the literature. It, it's not, uh, you know, some imagination-based thing. I mean, this is a real thing that's been documented. What we know about this is it's highly variable between individuals. So there have been studies that have really tried to probe at this variation between people this variability, and basically take a big group of people, overfeed all of them uh, by the same amount, and basically just see, do they all gain weight at approximately the same rate when we control as much as we could possibly control? And the answer is unequivocally no. Some people do have adaptive responses to overfeeding that help them defend their current body weight and make them more resistant to weight gain than others. Um, they're not immune to weight gain. They're just a little bit more resistant. Okay, that's a big distinction. So uh, if you're one of these people, um, you might find that overfeeding, you, you simply are just adapting to it by increasing your energy expenditure completely unintentionally. It's outside of your control, but it is a thing that happens. Um, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure that there's research examining this effect in both males and females. I would be stunned if it was all done in males, um, but I would also be stunned if it was a perfect 50-50 split because what you see in several lines of research in this general area, and we've talked about this in exercise science, people like to do studies with male subjects. Um, there's in many in many research areas, there is a discrepancy you know, where, where there are, you know, female research subjects are underrepresented in a lot of these studies. However, I'm pretty sure this body of research includes both male and female studies, or at least studies with mixed biological sexes in the sample. Just looking at like increases in mu muscle protein synthesis with increased protein intakes? No, looking at increases in energy expenditure with increased caloric intakes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I I'm, I'm virtually certain that there's at least some mixture of male and female research in this particular area. And I see absolutely no reason why, uh, why it would be something that occurs in only one sex and not the other. Just, I, I can't think of a mechanism that would uh, explain that. So um, my, my hunch is when it comes to, you know, the question was, does this, are there female hard gainers basically? 
here's my hunch. This is completely shooting from the hip. Greg, let me know if you disagree. I think we just see a smaller number of females talking about it on the internet. And so then the perception is that it, you know, might affect males more than females. I, I think it really is um, an issue where our perception uh, of who's affected by this is, is not truly indicative of a biological difference. Well, I mean, it, it probably also interacts with societal expectations to some degree. Like Absolutely. Most of the time, I would think since at least not like all culture, but gym culture at least is telling men like, hey, be as big and jacked as possible. If you're having a problem with that, that probably feels very acute. And so you get online and you're like, what can I do about this? Uh, there are absolutely uh, women who also want to get as big and strong and jacked as possible, but that is not as much the expectation. So if you are a female quote unquote hard gainer, you're probably less likely to see that as a bad thing because it, it more conforms with societal expectations. So like, I think you're probably not wrong. Uh, <laughs> if, if they're as common, probably a greater percentage of them see that as a good thing versus something like a problem to be solved. Absolutely. And, and like I said, like if you're, if you're someone who's trying to gain weight and you're frustrated that it, it's, it's more difficult than you expect, that is an extremely relatable thing. It's frustrating when, when you're trying to impose any kind of training adaptation or dietary adaptation, lose fat, gain muscle, get stronger. Whenever you run into friction, that's extremely frustrating. So it makes sense that you'd go on the internet and say, hey, what's going on here? Am I different? Uh, how do I fix this? Um, but I, I do suspect that because of some of those societal expectations that we just hear about it more from males than we do from females. And I should be clear that to acknowledge these societal factors is not to support these societal factors. You know, I've always been of the opinion, whatever body composition goal you have for yourself, you should go for it regardless of what other people expect of you. So no matter who you are, no matter what people expect you to do, if you want to get strong, powerful, fast, huge, shredded, whatever you want to do, you should go for it. Okay. Now, there's another kind of hard gainer. I would and again, this is just kind of an informal definition, but I'm trying to think of what might you be running to if you're running into if you're a person who's struggling to put on muscle or gain weight. Um, maybe um, you are a person who just has a relatively poor response to resistance training. You know, I'm, we've seen this in, in different hypertrophy related studies where they try to look at you know, we put all these people through the same protocol here. Do we see variation in how much muscle gets gained? And the answer is absolutely we do. We see pretty pretty broad variation. I saw um, Dr. Brandon Roberts gave a really good talk about this down in Mexico, about the heterogeneity in responses to resistance training. Um, you hate to say it, but unfortunately, some people don't respond as well to a hypertrophy program as others. Um, however, if, if you're in that situation extra protein is not going to solve that problem, you know? So the, 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 the root of the question here is do hard gainers benefit from going over that, that kind of traditional protein recommendation? Well, if you're a hard gainer, because you have this big adaptive increase in energy expenditure, more protein's not going to solve that in, in the same way. I mean, if you're not eating enough, it probably won't hurt. Right. But we're talking about 
adding or going beyond one gram. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to make that clear since oh, yeah, we yeah, yeah. started the question quite a bit ago. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're not responding well to training and you're eating 40 grams of protein per day, eating more very well probably will help in that situation. Absolutely. But yeah, if you're already eating what would generally be considered a sufficient amount, yeah, it's probably not going to help much. Yeah, so we, we've talked about a couple different potential reasons you'd run into this. One might be you have a big adaptive increase in energy expenditure. One might be that you're simply, I don't want to say a non-responder, but a below average responder to hypertrophy-related hypertrophy training programs. And whether you're in one group or the other, going beyond one gram per kilogram per day of protein is, is not going to be, I'm sorry, is that that must mean one gram per pound, right? Yeah, I I, I have to assume. Yeah, we, we could have just been working with completely wrong assumptions this entire time. <laughs> so the yeah the, the the question asks one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. That has to be asking about one gram per pound. I, I'm thinking so. So yeah, you, you will benefit from going above one gram per kilogram. Yeah. The the, the question is, you know, I, I talked about in my previous answer, my first answer of the day. The ideal range for most people is going to be somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. The question is, if you're a hard gainer, I'm making the question, if you go beyond that range, is that going to solve your problems? Not if you have an adaptive increase in energy expenditure. The solution to that is just more calories. If you just genetically are not, you just don't respond well in terms of hypertrophy, aside from just doing your best with your diet and doing your best with your training stimulus, going to some extra high protein intake again is not going to solve that that issue the one the one area where it might make sense to start going toward a slightly higher protein intake the only one that i could kind of put together as a hypothetical is if you are getting up there a little bit in terms of age um i, I don't know where exactly where the cutoff is for this but um, you know, a lot of a lot of the times when they do these protein studies and what they call older adults, we're talking, I think, 60s and beyond. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, w one of the one of the things about exercise science research is we talk about groups that are underrepresented. So uh, we've already mentioned on this podcast, uh, females are often pretty considerably underrepresented in exercise science research compared to males. I think maybe the most underrepresented demographic, though, is middle-aged people, because you'll see a ton of studies on folks who are, you know, 18 to 25 years old, and they're in the university, and easy subjects to get a hold of. You see a lot of stuff on people who are 60 years old and up, um, just because, like, geriatrics and uh, sarcopenia, osteoporosis research, there's a lot of funding in that. There is precious little research on people aged, say, like 30 to 55. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, we see a difference between young subjects and people who are 60 plus. And then the question is, when do these things start switching? Thing is, we don't know because there's, there's so little research on those inter, those intermediate age ranges. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is... There, there is a line of research looking at something that they call anabolic resistance. And so, I, like I said, I think most of the research, I think it's usually 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond where they, where they look at this, this concept of anabolic resistance. But basically, 
the same dose of a high quality protein doesn't elicit the same maximal response as it did when you were younger, once you start getting up there in years. And so uh, if you're a person who is in that kind of age range and you're like, you know what, I, I feel like I should be getting more of a hypertrophy stimulus than I am, that is the scenario in which it might make sense to say, maybe we try to push the protein a little bit higher. It's possible that, um, you know, one of the things that happens with aging is we become a little bit resistant to the, uh, the anabolic stimulus from protein intake in the diet. It might make sense then to, to try a little increase in protein intake, maybe even a little bit beyond that 2.2 grams per kilogram per day. But for the vast majority of people who, who kind of self-identify as a hard gainer, I don't think going beyond 2.2 grams per kilogram is going to be a viable solution. I think, uh, what you really ought to be focusing on is controlling energy intake and energy expenditure to do whatever you can to get into a caloric surplus. And I, I should mention that there's probably another group of people. Um, the, the reason I don't bring this up much is because it's pretty far outside of my area of expertise. I think some people, their brain wiring in terms of appetite control just functions at a thousand percent. Yeah. I, I think there are some people that once they get into positive energy balance, their appetite absolutely disappears. Um, and and I, I think it probably has to do with the the brain pathways associated with appetite control. And we actually have, we have a, a great article about that in the December issue of Mass coming up with uh, someone who actually does have expertise in this area. So I, I know as much as I learned from reading that in the review <laughs> process. But I, I do think that some people that identify as hard gainers, maybe they aren't a poor responder to training. Maybe they don't have a huge adaptive increase uh, to a caloric surplus. But maybe when they start trying to implement a caloric surplus, their appetite just disappears and they simply cannot adhere to it um, just because they feel gross and full. And again, in that situation, it's how do we get creative about getting into a caloric surplus? And usually it comes down to let's eat some extremely calorically dense, extremely palatable foods that just go down easy and don't fill you up. I'm going to just kind of walk a trebuchet up to the line that we shouldn't cross in this podcast and just vault myself completely far over it. Oh, God. What are you going to say? So something else that could make an impact is medication. Um, like oh, so, okay, so we're okay. we're we're not going to recommend anyone change their medications or dosages or anything like oh, that. Oh, okay. I thought but, you were going to go. <laughs> but one one of the things that I've come across several times training clients, especially younger men, um, is if they got an ADHD diagnosis when they were young and they're on Ritalin or Adderall. Uh, they have a lot of those same symptoms that you were just describing with like, you know, appetite regulation where, you know, th they basically have to choose between, you know, taking the pills their doctor told them to and being able to function the way they want to in day to day life and not being able to eat anything or just feeling like garbage if they do uh, or, you know, going off their pills and then having a really tough time functioning in day to day life, but then gaining muscle. So you know, making no recommendations about that in any way, shape or form. But that that is that is something that probably a fair amount of people like a non negligible amount of people listening to this uh, might be able to relate to as well. 
Yeah, that, that's a very, very good point. When you said you were about to cross a line we shouldn't cross, I was like, is he going to the irresponsible line or is he going to the offensive line? And I'm so glad you went the irresponsible <laughs> line. I, I feel really good about that. One other thing just to note as well, um, and I, I do think that this is something we're qualified to talk about, is you mentioned that people with uh, anabolic resistance um, specifically older people might benefit from higher protein doses. One thing to note is that that may actually not even apply to that many members of our audience who are older. Uh, reason why is that there was a study, I don't have it in front of me right now, but there was a study published like just last year out of uh, the godforsaken Netherlands that was looking at this. One of the things they noticed was that all of this research looking at anabolic resistance with aging was published uh, mostly in the U.S. and I think one study in Canada. Um, both the U.S. and Canada largely are car cultures. We don't really walk around all that much. So if you don't have a physically active job and you don't intentionally go out and do exercise, you're probably pretty sedentary. Um, versus a lot of Europe, they don't have as much of a car culture. There's more mass transit. There's generally like greater packing together of people so you walk around more to the shops and to people's houses and etc um, and so they did a similar study on a older dutch population and found that in that group there was no anabolic resistance which led them to speculate that you know maybe it's not so much an inherent feature of aging or if it is an inherent feature of aging maybe it like quote unquote naturally would happen at like 80 years old or 90 years old Versus like the 60s that, you know, the current research would support. But it's more just like, you know, by the time Americans and Canadians get to 60 years old, they're, they've been sedentary for decades and they're in really bad shape. And so they're having anabolic resistance. Whereas, you know, I would assume most of the 60-year-olds listening to our podcast are probably into physical culture in some way, shape, or form. And very well could still respond to protein intake just as you did when you were younger. Sounds like some Dutch propaganda to me. That's also incredibly possible. I wouldn't put it past them. You can't trust the Dutch. All right, should we move on? Let's do it. Okay. So here's the question from Cher. Wow, I think that's our first celebrity that's ever chimed in with a question. Hell yeah. Have we had one before? I don't think so. Cher, um, love your work. Okay, here's the question. The current literature doesn't provide a concrete upper limit for the amount of protein synthesis that you can generate following a single training session. However, it is generally accepted that doing too much will not necessarily yield better results in the form of more muscle protein synthesis, um, and it could even potentially be uh, detrimental due to accumulating muscle damage uh, from such a, a large training stimulus in a single session. Is it possible to speculate that the, d the diminished return from training too much can partly be explained by the muscle protein breakdown exceeding the maximum muscle protein synthesis that your body can generate in a single session? Yeah, so that that's a really good question. Um, and just kind of parsing it here, uh, question asks, can it be partly explained by muscle protein breakdown? Absolutely. Uh, the more interesting question I would say is, to what degree is that... Uh, you know, is that the causative factor and what other things might be in play? Um, so 
to start with, uh, as Cher alluded to, we don't really know... There hasn't been much acute research really looking to see the full dose response, muscle protein synthetic response to to various per session training volumes. So there's there's one study that gets cited a fair amount that looks at one set versus three sets, more muscle protein synthesis with three sets. Cool. Uh, you know, those are still both pretty low volumes. I haven't seen anything comparing, say, three sets to five sets to 10 sets to 20 sets in humans. However, there is a study in mice that's cited a pretty fair amount where um, they compared different uh, different set volumes of resistance exercise in mice uh, all the way from one set up to 20 sets. And what they saw is that in our furry little counterparts, muscle protein synthesis plateaued after about five sets of uh, resistance exercise. So, and, and at that point, muscle protein synthesis and very various anabolic signaling molecules tended to plateau. I think mTOR kept ramping up, but most of like the downstream targets of mTOR and MPS itself generally plateaued, but didn't decrease after five sets. Um, however, so I, I'm not saying five sets is the magic number in humans because it isn't mice. That would be wildly irresponsible. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that we would probably see that same general type of relationship in humans. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously if there is a a per session set volume where MPS plateaus, as you do more sets, that is going to cause more and more stress to the muscles. That is probably going to cause, you know, damage, which then those proteins are going to have to be broken down and then rebuilt. That's where a lot of the muscle protein breakdown comes from. You're going to get local inflammation. There's going to be some additional muscle protein breakdown due to the inflammatory response. Um, so those things are going to ramp up. Uh, but I'm somewhat skeptical that that acute muscle protein breakdown is going to be sufficient to completely overwhelm the muscle protein synthetic response you see from training. So like w when you look at increases in muscle protein synthesis after training, they're huge, um, like a multifold increase over baseline. And in studies that look at acute muscle protein breakdown after training, it increases, but not to the same degree that you see synthesis increasing. So on one hand, I do think that it is entirely plausible that you could do a high enough level of training volume in a session that muscle protein breakdown acutely massively overwhelms muscle protein synthesis. However, I think that's also probably going to be quite a bit beyond the point that you started getting plateauing results. So just to kind of put some random numbers on it, let's say five sets is the Goldilocks number where you've maximized muscle protein synthesis, but you haven't done any extra sets yet. You'll get some muscle protein breakdown from that. Then let's say you did eight sets. Uh, maybe you get slightly worse results. Maybe you get a little bit more muscle protein breakdown, but acute MPS is still going to be a lot higher than acute muscle protein breakdown. Uh, once you hit the point that you're like plateauing and it's so much that, uh, you know, you're not longitudinally gaining muscle anymore, 
I still think you're going to see acutely muscle protein synthesis being above muscle protein breakdown. By the time you get to the point where on a per session basis, MPS equals MPB and say like the 24 hours following that training session, like on an acute basis, you're probably at that point just massively overdoing per session volume and just hemorrhaging muscle off of your body. So essentially, like I said, to, to answer like the text of the question, can muscle protein breakdown uh, partly explain these diminishing returns we see with higher and higher volumes? Yeah, probably. But for like the acute muscle protein breakdown to fully explain it, you need to be doing outrageous amounts of volume. Um, one of the things we see, however, when we look at the overtraining literature is that we see uh, changes in global hormone levels. We also see changes in global inflammatory status. Um, recent study that just came out in the past month or two found that androgen receptor density decreased in muscles uh, in an overtrained state. So what I think is much, much more likely is that uh, what's going on, like why we see the diminishing returns and uh, potentially even atrophy if volume gets too high is... Yeah, maybe acute elevations in muscle protein breakdown play a small role, but I don't think it's going to play a huge role because in trained lifters, you have repeated bouts effect type adaptations that help protect against a fair amount of damage and thus muscle protein breakdown. So that's probably playing a small role, but not a huge role. I think what's more likely to explain it is that kind of baseline levels of muscle protein synthesis versus muscle protein breakdown change. So in completely untrained lifters um, who say, you know, aren't in the period of their life where senescence is a big factor yet, you know, let's let's say you're 25 years old, you're untrained, you're not doing anything. On a day-to-day basis, just baseline levels of muscle protein synthesis versus muscle protein breakdown, probably going to be pretty even. In trained lifters, uh, if you don't train, muscle protein breakdown is going to be a little bit higher at rest than muscle protein synthesis, at least when averaged over the course of a day. That's why you'll slowly atrophy if you don't keep training. Um, so what's most likely is that when you're in like an overtrained state and you're doing excessive volume, your like per session training reso- response is probably still net anabolic, but you're not in the gym 24 hours a day. Um, And so kind of that baseline muscle protein synthesis to muscle protein breakdown ratio is probably shifted more in favor of just higher levels of muscle protein breakdown at rest, lower levels of muscle protein synthesis at rest. And that's probably the bigger driver than just like acute muscle protein breakdown from excessive per session volume. Um, That is what I think is is probably most likely to be happening in a scenario like that. Now, one thing I'll note is that it is physiologically possible for muscle protein breakdown to just massively exceed synthesis into that call and for that to cause like, say, ridiculous amounts of or for that to be associated with just massively ridiculous amounts of muscle damage and massively prolonged declines in muscle function. So, for example, if you take completely untrained lifters and have them do like just a really sadistic uh, maximal eccentric training protocol, you'll often see uh, <laughs> you'll often see or there are some studies that look at recovery up to a week after the initial training impulse. 
And you'll see that a fair amount of the people uh, still aren't recovered a week later. And so like, and, and we're still, and we're talking like a 10, 20% reduction in force output after a week of recovery. Um, I don't think those studies are also taking biopsies to look and see like, oh, did uh, myofibrillar protein also decrease? But in a situation like that, where you've had a week to recover from a training impulse and you're still having like a pretty notable decrease in performance, I think it's very likely that that training, that training you underwent was so extreme that you did actually break down more muscle protein than you synthesized. Um, just from, you know, one training impulse that obviously wouldn't be causing overtraining. So, so I do think, I do think the phenomenon you're asking about is physiologically possible, but I don't think it's hugely relevant in trained lifters who aren't, you know, just 10 xing their training volume overnight. I think just kind of shifts in uh, maybe androgen receptor density, maybe hormones, maybe global inflammatory status. Those things are probably more so shifting baseline uh, muscle protein synthesis and muscle bro- protein breakdown levels. And that's probably what's causing the decreases in hypertrophy or actual atrophy over time, much more so than just acute muscle protein breakdown from muscle damage after training. Makes sense to me. Cool. Final question for both of us is from Cam. Cam says, hey, gentlemen. Hey, Cam. Hey, Cam. I have a question related to your recent podcast where you talk about recommendations for prerequisites entering an exercise science degree. I'm now five years removed from my bachelor's degree in kinesiology, and I'm looking to apply to a master's program in exercise science. The problem is that after five years, I haven't stayed in touch with any professors to the degree that I would readily ask them for an academic reference. Do either of you have any recommendations on how to seek out a quality academic reference without being a complete jerk about it? Yeah, so every now and then on the Q&A episodes, we'll talk about some kind of like professional development type thing. So when people have questions about, you know, writing or, or building a business, we send those Greg's way. But when you're in the ivory tower of academia, now you're in my domain. Okay, so I'm going to go I'm going to go first on this one. We're talking about getting recommendation letters to get into a program. I do want to make this somewhat generalizable so that other people get some benefit from this answer. So, I'm going to answer that directly and then also talk about I've had a lot of people reach out to me asking how to get involved in research in general. So, I want to touch on that as well because they're, they're kind of related here. So I would say you really have two approaches you could take here. Um, when you're trying to get some recommendation letters for a program, your options are essentially to utilize relationships you have made in the past or potentially to make new relationships that, that, that would, uh, that would fit the criteria. So, um, One thing to keep in mind is whenever you're applying to some kind of program, look to see if they have stipulations about who exactly is qualified to offer a letter. Every now and then they'll they'll have some very specific requirements about you need two letters from this kind of person and one letter from that kind of person. Okay, so you'll want to make sure you know exactly what they're looking for. Now, if you're going to utilize uh, relationships that you had previously formed that you, you just haven't been in touch with these folks for a while, I would not hesitate to uh, contact them at their university 
you know, email address and basically drop them a line and get right to the point and basically say, hey, I took your class a while ago. Uh, I did well in it. I enjoyed it. Maybe give them a brief reminder of who you are, extremely concise and brief. Maybe you attach a resume, something along those lines. Basically, it should be a single email where they can refresh their memory. I remember who this is. They did well enough in my class or, or in the program here that would warrant me writing them a recommendation. Um, and and that, that's key. You want to make sure that they know, you know, especially if you did well in their class, say, here's, here's the grade I got in your class. Here's my resume attached. Here's what I'm applying for. Give them all the information they need and be as concise as possible. Now, I would suspect that most professors would be pretty cool with giving you a relatively lukewarm uh, recommendation letter with that alone. Uh, unless you are just a complete shithead. Right. Yeah. That's a big part of the question is, were you terrible? Because <laughs> if you were, then they're probably not going to write it. And... Then send the email and include as few details as possible. Like, hey, I sat kind of in the middle of the room. I'm an average looking person. If that helps you place me, I I did nothing of interest except pass my classes. Please say that I'm a decent person. Yeah, exactly. So here, here's the thing. For a lot of these recommendation letters, I don't think anybody is looking for anything particularly remarkable. This is my hunch, being that I lived in the university setting for about 10 years uh, leading up to this year. I don't think the the recommendation letter is going to, in most cases, make or break you. Obviously, if somebody leaves something that is particularly terrible, that might be problematic. But most people aren't going to go out of their way to do that. They will actually tell you, I don't feel comfortable writing you a recommendation letter. And when you ask for the recommendation letter, this might sound silly, but uh, somebody told me this one time, and I think it was good advice. Ask a person if they would feel comfortable writing you a positive recommendation letter, not just a recommendation letter. Ooh, here, here's also a recommendation hack. Uh, so there was, <clears throat> assuming you're American, if you're not American, I don't know what the laws are in your country. But there was a pretty recent federal law, like passed within the last three or four years, where um, students now have to be able to see what uh, what people said in their recommendation letters. Um, so, like, you can waive that right. So when I applied to grad school, I waived that right. I didn't know if that was something that the grad schools were going, going to be able to see if you waived the right or not. I was like, yeah, it would probably make me look better as an applicant if I showed that I was confident enough that I didn't, I didn't need to read this. But I'm pretty sure it's the case that it is your right to be able to see what they wrote. And generally, they're submitted electronically. You just choose to not waive your right when you apply, and you can see what people are saying about you. So something you could do if you're willing to uh, like spend a few bucks on an application is if you kind of think someone's going to write you a bad review... Um, or like a bad recommendation, you could just apply to a school you don't particularly want to get into. Don't waive your right to see your letters of recommendation and just look at the letters of recommendation. And if someone's writing you a bad one, ask another professor for one. Like that, that is, that's something I'm, I'm like 95% sure you can do. Yeah. I've never thought of that. That's interesting. But Generally speaking, if you're going to rely on old relationships, go for the people that obviously might remember you, might have good memories of you, and, and 
if possible, it would be great if you could get people who taught subject matter that was relevant to the program you're applying to. So if you're applying to exercise science, like a master's degree, but you you get like your history and your English professors to write those recommendations, that's not necessarily terrible, but it would probably be better if you got someone who, who was teaching your undergrad kinesiology or at least loosely related coursework, because um, then they could speak to your ability as it pertains to that specific academic domain. Like I said, it, if you had a just absolutely incredible relationship with a professor from a non an unrelated uh, course, and if there's no specification that it has to be a certain professor uh, when it comes to the uh, application materials, if they don't say it has to be you know an exercise science professor, then obviously if it's a really positive relationship, that that might be a, a good option. Um, and like I said. I, Usually professors, they, they do so many of these every single year. They pretty much have a template sitting there. And if you can jog their memory and they say, oh, yeah, the student was pretty fine, they're probably going to be willing to write you a quick letter. It might not be, you know, the most uh, engaging letter. It might not be like, please, whatever you do, let the student in. But they're probably going to write you a pretty okay letter, uh, assuming that they don't have any any ax to grind with you, so to speak. One final alternative piece of advice that I would give is that, um, as Eric said to start with, generally recommendation letters aren't going to be a make or break type thing. If you are a reasonably competitive candidate, like, you know, your grades weren't absolute trash, your GRE score, or, you know, if your country has standardized testing, whatever that standardized test score is at least okay. One thing to keep in mind is that not all exercise science grad schools are incredibly competitive. So, you know, maybe your academics coming in aren't the best, and maybe you're not going to get good recommendation letters, and maybe you're going to get turned down from your first choice school. But, I mean, like I said, exercise science master's programs aren't law school. It's not med school. It's not that type of competitive. There are absolutely competitive programs out there, but if you really, really want to go back to school and get your master's, there is probably somewhere that will take you as long as you're not just a horrendously bad applicant. And then, you know, it sucks if you can't get into your first choice school, but then as long as you do really, really well at the master's level and really show out, do good work, get good grades, develop good relationships then hopefully that should open more doors for a PhD program if that's what you want to do next. Or, you know, certainly just having those letters behind your name will open more doors career-wise for you. So, you know, <laughs> not the most optimistic advice, but if everything seems to be stacked against you, you can set your sights lower and somewhere will probably take you, which is better than, you know, only applying to your dream school, getting rejected and not doing anything. That is a good point. And, and one final point, a lot of schools are not going to expect you to have really close personal relationships with a bunch of your undergrad professors. You know, so for example, my chemistry class in undergrad, I'm pretty sure it had 600 kids in it. Um, one time they forgot the microphone and we didn't even try. Everybody went home, right? <laughs> if, if there were, if there were <laughs> the microphone doesn't work, you're not having class because it's just not going to happen. Okay. So who in that class do you think developed a really close personal bond with that chemistry professor? 
nobody. Maybe one or two kids that that absolutely loved the material. So, it, you know, you're you're not expected to have a ton of extremely close personal uh, relationships with you know the professors at your undergrad. So even just a pretty okay letter is going to be fine. Now, I did mention uh, at the beginning of the question, another option is to actually form new relationships, okay? And so if you live anywhere near a university that does have an exercise science lab that does any kind of exercise-related research or anything even close to that type of research, you could always start volunteering at a lab. Um, And a lot of people have asked me, unrelated to to application stuff but they're like i am really into research how do i get involved the easiest way is to just volunteer in somebody's lab that is somewhere you know remotely close to where you live um in my opinion you know those really positive academic relationships are formed sometimes in office hours rarely in the classroom but very commonly in the lab a lot of times when, when you're in the lab doing that work that the professor is excited about, uh, it, it's just a more conducive environment to forming a really close bond and for them to be in positions where they had to rely on you or they had to see you take initiative uh, or they had to see you just engage with the material and be really excited about it. Those are the memories that are going to stick in their head of, wow, that was a student who was really dependable, loves the subject matter. Um understands what it's all about in terms of how this field works. So if you want a really good recommendation letter, you're never going to get a better recommendation letter than the one you get from someone whose lab you volunteered in regularly. Um, That is by far uh, the best bond you can form when it comes to, you know, those strong academic relationships between professors and and the students uh, in, in their program. So Um, You know, people have asked me, like I said, how do I get involved in research? Volunteering in a lab is the number one way to do it. Now, there are other ways to do it. Um, You know, there are some people who do contribute to the research literature um, without a ton of hands-on lab experience. And usually what they have to do is, generally speaking, they have a master's degree at minimum. And generally speaking, they have built up enough of a reputation in the field that they are perceived as an expert. So uh, I would say, Greg, you you um, you do have the hands-on lab experience, but you're in that kind of uh, position where because you've been a successful writer for so long and people know your areas of expertise, people have reached out to you to collaborate on on writing in the academic space. And again, you got your your master's degree. Um, and there are other people who have done a similar thing. They're kind of well-known people with an academic skill set that are able to contribute to the research literature because people know what their skill set is. That is a hard road to pay for yourself. Um, obviously, you did it. I know of a few other people who have done it, but that, that's not the not the typical path to entering the research world. Yeah, I would, I, I would put no eggs in that basket. Exactly. It, it takes a unique skill set. Uh, a really insane amount of dedication to that end and luck and some luck. Um, So some people have pulled it off that way. I think a lot of people that ask me like, how do I get into research? They think like that's the the route they want to go of like, (laughs) you know what I mean? They're like, Oh, I want to just have people come up to me and say, Hey, do research with me. Um, The more typical route is the one I took, which is you, uh, 
go to college for 10 years and do somewhere between 20 and 40 studies. <laughs> and then eventually people will call you a researcher. But, uh, but yeah, so if you want to get into research, uh, the most likely route to do that is you go start from the ground floor. You, you go volunteer at a lab. You do, honestly, the, the fairly low-skilled tasks to kind of pay your dues and, and work your way into the lab. Eventually, uh, you know, they start, they typically will start trusting you with some more skilled uh, tasks in the lab. You start getting more responsibilities. You build that relationship and now you are officially within the research infrastructure. And, and as long as you've got the academic background or are willing to pursue the academic credentials to support that, now you have officially worked your way in. So I, I wish that there was a super easy, quick way to do it that doesn't involve either spending a whole lot of uncompensated time or foregoing a lot of income for a sustained period of time. But usually it's either you do you work your normal job and volunteer in your free time or you go the full-time student route and and it's you know you're, you're probably foregoing some amount of income during that time so there's no quick way to it but there are a few very viable paths if you're willing to uh to make some of those sacrifices you think we sufficiently answered that question i think we did perfect all right well that does it that's another q a episode for the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, thank you for listening. If you want your questions answered on a future episode, be sure to go over to tiny.cc slash SBSQA. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.